welcome to Man Up, the podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic, the Christian in crisis. Are you ready? Man up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bolden, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all the information and encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We are a band of brothers. We are soldiers in arms. We are comrades. And that means that we fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, and mile after mile until each of us helps the others attain the high calling of Jesus. Today, we're rejoined by our friend, fellow evangelist, and podcaster, Edwin Crozier. Edwin has been with us since last week, and we were talking about managing the crises that come up in our lives, and Edwin has a lot of good insight into that, and I hope that you enjoyed last week's podcast. This week, we're going to wrap up with two final questions and then the popular rapid-fire segment, where we give quick answers to the kinds of issues that might come up in our day-to-day life. I do want to let the audience know that over the course of the rapid-fire section, Edwin is going to share some very personal family information, and it was with his permission that I left this in the episode, and he hopes that it will help you maybe navigate some situations in your own life. So we want to say thanks to Edwin for sharing and for being the kind of man who's willing to take a difficult situation and hopefully sow some good from it. Are you ready? Man up. So if you look at the logo for this podcast, you see the passage from 1 Corinthians 16, 13, which the New American Standard renders equip yourself like men. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 1 says, prepare your mind for action and fix your your hope entirely on the grace that's to be brought about at the appearing of Jesus. Both of those are in verse 13 of those of their respective passages. When Paul tells his reader to equip themselves like men, and Peter says, prepare your mind for action, what are some ways that men need to prepare themselves to be men in times of crisis? And what are some things that might seem like preparedness that are causing issues for us? All right. I don't know. I, I haven't gotten to listen to enough of your podcast to know if we're going to part ways on this one, Jared. So I'm just going to, I'm going to let Jesus manage this crisis. I'm just going to tell you what I think I see from scripture. And I'll tell you if you and, disagree with me, I'm it's wrong, okay to be wrong. <laughs> okay, that's right. If I'm wrong, you can correct me because we'll just get into the scripture and we'll let Jesus manage you this. You know what? I'll tell you what I think is one of the issues that, you know, the, the last part of that, some things that uh, might seem like preparedness that are causing issues. I'm just going to tell you, in my opinion, as I look at Scripture, when people say that I've got to train up my boys to be men, so I'm going to enroll them in kickboxing, I think that can be a problem. I don't think it's wrong to enroll your boys in kickboxing. I don't think it's wrong. I mean, I had my own son in Taekwondo for a while. Put your put your daughters in it. I mean, I don't I don't care. I have a problem with with thinking that's about being a yes. man. That, that a man is someone who knows how to beat down someone else. That a man is someone who knows how. The great, and here, here's why I have a problem with that. So, you know, the interesting thing is we look up in 1 Corinthians 6.13, that word that is translated, man up. Yes. That now, word, can you drop, can you drop your voice in octave when you say that? Man, I can, man I'm not up. sure I can't. Man up. 
man nice. up. I can't do the nice. radio. So, you know, here's, here's an interesting thing. It, it really is the idea of being courageous. That's when, when, when you start looking at how that word is used in the Bible, and it's only used in the New Testament in the 1 Corinthians 16 passage, which gives us a little bit of problem. When we go back, though, to the Old Testament, we find that the, the translators of the Septuagint actually used it a couple of times. And there are a couple of times where it's used about going into battle. Right. It is used about that. But I, I'll tell you, look, here, I, I'm just going to turn to this. This is in Second Chronicles chapter 32. Okay. In Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. So in Second Chronicles 32, Sennacherib has come into uh, Judah, and Hezekiah is trying to make all his preparations, and here's what he says. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with them, for there are more with us than with him. All right, so Hezekiah is telling them, be strong and courageous. And he uses that word, adridzamai. Be like men. Be courageous. Although in this one, in, in this English version, that be strong may be the thing they have there. But still that concept, be strong and courageous. And he says, because look, the ones that are with us are more than the ones that are with him. That sounds a lot like we've got a lot more soldiers, and so we can fight harder, and we can whoop Sennacherib and his army. But wait a minute. Let's read the next verse. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. The, The issue here is not, I man up, by learning how to shoot a gun or wield a sword, I don't have a bit of problem with people shooting guns and wielding swords, you know, but that's not how I man up, which is why if a woman wants to learn how to shoot a gun, go learn how to shoot a gun. I, that's, that's not masculinity. If a woman wants to become a kickboxer, become a kickboxer because that's not masculinity. Manning up is having the courage to trust God no matter what is facing me. Psalm 31. This is another place where this word is used. In Psalm 31, I don't know if we have time to read the whole psalm, but in Psalm 31, we find it in the very uh, last verse. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This this whole psalm has been about waiting for the Lord. Mm -hmm. This whole psalm has been about, I've got adversaries that are coming at me. God, we're in a covet relationship. Why aren't you doing something about this? Now, look, I get it. In the the Old Testament, in the battles with David and his enemies, sometimes that did mean that armies were going to face each other and God delivered them through those battles. But sometimes it meant they were going to march around the walls and the walls were going to fall down. And sometimes it meant they were going to shatter jugs and, and the guys were just going to die. And I'll tell you what, there in Second Chronicles, what it meant was they were going to wake up and they were going to find that an angel had killed 85,000 Assyrians. And it's, it's, I'm waiting for the Lord, having the courage to wait on yes. the Lord. That is what it means to man up. And here's this, this to me is most phenomenal. I want to read something to you. This is outside of the Bible. Okay. But that word andridzomai, am I allowed to use that? Am I allowed to quote something outside sure, the Bible ahead. here? That that word andridzomai is used in the, the book that's called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was according to history, a disciple of John. 
who ended up becoming a bishop in the Lord's Church. And during one of the persecutions, he was arrested and imprisoned and executed. As he is being brought into the arena where the proconsul is going to try him and decide what's going to happen to him, I just want to read. This is in chapter 9. If you look at the martyrdom of Polycarp, this is in chapter 9. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. Show thyself a man, that's our word. This, this letter was originally written in Greek, just like our New Testament. That's our same word. Look, I don't know if Polycarp really heard that voice. People can, we can bicker about that if we want to. I, I tell you what I do know is that when the person was telling this story, they knew what Andridzomai meant. It meant show yourself to be a man, and here's what that looked yeah. like. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to thy old age, and other similar things, according to their custom, such as, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists! But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen, then in the stadium and waving his hand towards them, while with groans he looked up to heaven, he said, Away with the atheists! I love that. The part of what the guy said that he could say, he went ahead and said it. Away with the atheists! <laughs> then the proconsul, urging him and saying, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ! Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? They kept trying to get Polycarp to turn away from Jesus. They just could not handle killing an old guy, burning him alive. They kept giving him choices, but that voice had told him, you stand up and be a man. He let them light the fire, and he died. And I, I'm just, when I think about this, what, what we have is in the garden, the night that Jesus was betrayed, Peter had told Jesus, I am ready to die for you tonight. And we often look at that and say, well, Peter just, you know, Peter, he, he wasn't sincere. He was, are you kidding me? He was absolutely sincere. Do you remember who was the one that was ready to start a fight that pulled out his sword and started attacking people? That was Peter. Peter was ready to die with Jesus. He was absolutely ready to die with Jesus in battle. He was ready to man up and fight his way to get Jesus on the throne. But when Jesus told him, that's not, that's not our way. We, we've, I've often looked at the, where he says this, when he says those who take the sword will die by the sword, as if what Jesus was trying to do was extend Peter's life and save his life. He wasn't. He was pointing out, we don't live and die by the sword. We live and die by the cross. That's what it means to be a man, and that's what it means for us to, to grow in the masculinity. By the way, that's just what it means to be a Christian. You know, when, when Paul wrote that, he was talking to the men and the, the brothers and the sisters. They're all supposed to be this kind of courageous. Right. That we're going to stand up, and you know what? We're going to die by the cross. You, you come and attack us, we're, we're just going to stay true to the Lord. We're just, and that's, that to me is the key. That, that to me is the key, that we've, we've got to stay true to Jesus and have that kind of courage. And so 
how do we prepare men and frankly women? You know what? We need to spend some time reading about the martyrs. We need to spend some time remembering what Jesus did. We need to spend some time looking at actually how things did end for Peter. You know, in John, at the end there, when Jesus calls him back after his denials, three times he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love, oh Lord, you know that I do. And then Jesus said, you know what? Today you get to dress yourself and go where you want to go. But one of these days, somebody else is going to dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And that is one of the most shocking pep talks in all of history. One of the most shocking recruitment speeches, Peter, I want you to know, look, if you follow me, they're going to kill you. And yet Peter comes on board and I'll tell you why. Because Peter had told Jesus, I'm ready to die with you. And he failed. And what Jesus was telling Peter is stick with me, kid, and you'll actually do it. I'll get you there. You, you will, this commitment you've made to me, I'll get you there. And, and, and that's exactly what Peter did. It's an, it's an amazing thing. We, we, need to, we need to train up one another and be prepared for actual persecution. And it, you know, it starts with not making, and I do this all the time. I'm, I'm not talking to everybody else. I'm talking to me right now, Jared, where I make these little compromises. I make these little compromises about spirituality and what it means to really follow the Lord in this culture. Right. And I, I got to get rid of that. I love the title of the book that Rod Dreher wrote, which he got from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the phrase, live not by lies. I'm going to live by the truth, and I, I'm not ever going to lie, and I'm not ever going to support untruth just because it preserves my income and my job and my house. I'm, uh, I'm not sure that I'm there yet, but that's what it's going to take for us to prepare that same thought that you that you were just talking about, the Adridzmai, shows up in the Greek rendering of Joshua chapter 1 three different times, that God twice tells Joshua to be strong and courageous and don't be discouraged or dismayed because I'm going with you wherever you go. And the people echo that mm-hmm. back to him later in that same chapter. And it's the word itself I don't think is there, but it's the same sentiment that you see in Deuteronomy chapter 31 where, where Moses is handing the mantle over to Joshua. And never is that word used that I see in Scripture where it's a complete and total, other than when I think the Philistines use it once, where it is talking about complete and total dependence on man's strength, that when it's being used by the people of God, it's always depending on God's strength. And it's strange to me that it's the thought behind First Peter chapter four, where Peter tells us that he didn't he didn't revile, but kept entrusting himself to a faithful Creator. That you have that that's the, here's this idea of Jesus when he suffered, and Peter keeps coming back to that in the book of First Peter. How did Jesus deal with the influences of the world? How did he deal with persecution? He didn't raise up arms. He just kept trusting God. It's Daniel in the lion's den. It's it's. It's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fiery furnace, or as you know, I grew up hearing them called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which I'm, I don't think they'd want to be known by their Babylonian names, to be honest with you. That, that I mean, they had names that honored God, and their names were changed to honor the gods of Babylon. But the point at which, at the, the, at the point where their faith came in contact with crisis, they didn't rely on their strength. They relied on the strength of God, and, and they had no idea 
how God was going to deliver them from that or that God would deliver them from that. But their mind was made up before they went before Nebuchadnezzar. This is how we're going to answer him, and this is where our trust is. And and I think that actually answers the question that we didn't ask, which is how do we become more Christ-centered in the middle of such distraction? It's you've got to stop letting the crisis be bigger than the Savior. You've got to stop letting the things of the world be bigger than our God. I mean, we'll get together on Sunday mornings and sing, Our God, He is alive. And, and Or we'll sing, The battle belongs to the Lord. But when we go out Monday through Saturday, are we fighting the battle the Lord's way? Are we trying to win the, the, the battles that He cares about, which are not the turn of the country, but the turn of the heart and the turn of the individual that start with my own heart? And then am I engaging the culture around me in a way that could lead them to see Jesus as a Savior as opposed to seeing me as an adversary? Trying to think through some of this, you know, the, the idea of this being strong and courageous, meaning trusting in the Lord. I, I certainly recognize that in the Old Testament, sometimes being strong and courageous and trusting in the Lord meant taking up the sword and going into the land and fighting. Sure. At God's instruction. But I go back to Numbers at God's instruction. But I go back to Numbers 14, and here were people that thought that, you know, that bravery, that courage just meant going and fighting the fight. And they decided to go at the end of Numbers 14, they decided to go at, they, they refused to go into the land at first, and God punishes them and they say, Well, now we're gonna go into the land. And they took up their swords and they got stomped. Because taking up the sword does not equal trusting in the Lord. And Jesus highlights, you know, that, I mean, that's not our way. That's not our way. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't trust the Lord by fighting like men fight. And I think that means militarily, politically. Ah, oh, listen, you, you asked a little while ago, crises that I'm concerned about. I'll tell you a crisis that I'm concerned about. I think, you know, despite the fact that Psalms tell us to put our trust in God rather than princes, we, we today, it seems there's a whole lot of Christians that put their trust in presidents and they think that the, what's going to fix everything is get the right president. It's just not, it's just right. not. I, I mean, I'm not saying you can't have political opinions. I have political opinions. If you want a certain guy elected, fine, vote for that person. And even, you know, if you want to try to convince people, that's, that's fine. But man, look, we've had presidents on both sides of the aisle and our culture is still where it is. We've had presidents on both sides of the aisle, and we're still in a mess because that's always going to let you down. Yep. So let's get into the rapid fire section. I've really enjoyed how this discussion has gone. It didn't quite go the direction I thought it was going to go initially, and that led us to a lot of fun things to talk about that I was, I'm really excited for the guys to hear this. That you never want to give oh, well, you never I, want to give people hope it's been a, kind of a repeat of things that they've had, and I think we I think we touched on a lot of things today that that are going to be eye opening. At least I hope they will. <laughs> you know, Thank you. I, I hope it is. I hope it is. We'll we'll leave that up to God. I absolutely. Guess. But we're getting into the rapid fire section, and this is this is the section that I I think most of the, most of the audience really enjoys because they're real life type circumstances. Many of them are real and the names have been changed to protect the innocent. And in some cases, the foolish, but. Well, I, I, when, when you start the rapid fire section, my, you know, my mind just says, okay, big money, big money, no whammies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no money at all. 
I'm dating myself, I know, but or aging myself, I should say. But we're going to set our spiritual AR-15s for three-round bursts. And, and basically, the goal here is okay. to give All people right. something that they can walk away with if they're dealing with a similar type issue. What are you doing personally okay. to become more Christ-centered? Okay. I struggle to answer this because I, I, I mean, I... I, I just struggle to answer simply because I don't I don't like talking too much along the line of here's what I'm doing and I want you know I'm I, I try I take seriously don't let the left hand know what the right hand is sure. doing, but from the uh, but just from the perspective of maybe some things that are helping me will help others too I will I will share with you that for me the something that that I started a few years ago and it really was precipitated by just some actually some personal spiritual crises if you will as COVID got started and just some recognition about my own spiritual life and the realization that discipleship had become really for me more a job than, than a reliance upon God and some changes I started making at that time. The, the, what I call it is giving my first hour to God. I I know when I go into the scripture, I see God wants what's first. And I, I wish I could say that since I made that decision, I've done this every single day. I haven't, but it's it's the commitment that I'm going to give my first hour to God. And I've just come up with a cadre of spiritual disciplines that I assign a set amount of time to. And, and it's changed. I, I had one approach when I first started. Where I am now is I set the timer for 15 minutes and I read the Bible. And then I set the timer for 15 minutes and I uh, do some scripture memorization. And then I set my timer for 10 minutes and I make uh, a gratitude list, if you will. I, I write on the page, praise, thanksgiving, and I have two sentence starters, Yahweh, you are, and I just start making a list of you know things about God that are worthy of praise. And then the other list is Yahweh, thank you for, and I just start listing things to thank him for. And those lists often look very similar, but there are things that happen in any given day that might make those lists different. But I, but I do that for 10 minutes. And then for 20 and then once that's done for 20 minutes I I pray. And at that particular prayer I actually do it as I write the prayer because it helps me stay focused and I know when I'm not praying because I'm not writing. You know, I, I know when I've stopped praying and gone to just thinking because I'm no longer writing and so that helps me but the but the writing of it also helps me to make my prayers purposeful. So that that's a thing that's that's very much helping me be more Christ-centered, giving my first hour to God. I think it's interesting how many guys have mentioned the idea of journaling their prayers and, and doing it early in the day, you know, the, the first hour kind of thing, that it is something that when I initially heard it, I thought, well, that, that, that's kind of interesting. And then I heard it a second time. I thought, oh, well, you know, brother so-and-so does this as well. And I think you're the fourth or fifth person to say that to me recently. And and it's something that I think the more that I've thought about it, and and I don't implement it myself, but I probably will the more that I see that there's a value to it that maybe we ought to think about, particularly when we're when we're in the mode where it's just between us and God. You know, one of the things that I ask, you know, brothers in Christ that come to me and they're they're talking about struggles in faith, they're talking about their own personal crisis and and the sin that's besetting them. And and I'll ask them very point blank, you know, tell me what you're reading and, and tell me about your prayers. And Chris Emerson gave me a third one to add to that, and that's, you know, tell me what you believe about Jesus. Is he going to get you through this or not? And I think that those are questions that 
you know, maybe we ought to be more honest with ourselves about that, that. What am I really reading? Am I am I reading the Bible just to hit a checklist, or am I am I reading to understand? That's what I liked about your text talk when you were introducing that at the beginning of our of our discussion. Am I praying? to express praise and gratitude and the things that I'm concerned about? Or am I just, have just made a habit of prayer? And I could see how something like journaling the prayer might help. And one of the things that, again, and I fully understand what you're saying about not letting the left hand know what the right hand is doing, but for the sake that it might help our brethren. But one of the things that I've tried to do over the past few years is be very intentional about the lessons that I'm communicating with my son about trusting Jesus and asking myself, am I modeling those? And that has helped me in a lot of ways to mature in my faith. And I hope that it will continue to help me, and I hope that it will help maybe others, that if we get very intentional about one aspect of our faith, then other aspects of our faith may grow as we become more intentional about that. Regarding the prayer journaling, writing the prayers, I think there are some benefits to doing that. But I do, I do want to point out the one negative that I have experienced is that as that became, has become more of a habit for me in that first initial prayer of the day is that sometimes I feel like when I haven't written it down, I wasn't really praying. So there were, that, that's the one negative that I've experienced from that. Everything else has been positive. And so I, I've just had to recognize that, look, I don't have to write it down to be right. praying. And, and you know, I, I can just speak it. I can think it. The, the, the main benefit for the writing is, despite what a lot of people think, prayer is not just Godward thinking. Prayer is actually communicating things to God and, and writing forces us to think it through. And so that's, that's one of the reasons I like that. Plus, I'm a writer. I'm just a writer, so it probably fits me better than than some people. I, I I'm that's so I that may not be the right thing for everybody, but that does work for me because I am yeah. a writer. I'm a writer too, not published, but I enjoy the process of writing. That yeah. So a younger brother in Christ tells you he's been considering the evil in the world and asks you pointedly. This is the easiest question ever. You ready? Why does God allow this to happen? You can see that this is genuinely affecting his faith. This isn't just, you know, I'm tired of serving Jesus and I don't I don't want to to do that anymore, so I'm going to ask a tough question. But this is really affecting his faith. How are you going to answer him? I'm going to, well, rapid fire, th- share three things. First of all, I'm going to highlight that evil came into the, God created the world and when he was done, he saw that it was very good. The evil came into the world because of the influence of Satan and man submitting to that. It's, it's sin that has produced that. It wasn't, it wasn't God. So I'm going to start there just by trying to point that out. That look, this is, this is why evil came in. And you look at, um, actually, I just thought of something else. That when in Ephesians, when Paul refers to in chapter 2 and verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What we see going on around us is because of, of the world letting Satan lead the world, not because of people following God. Right. Now, that doesn't deal with why does God allow it. That just says, here's why we're here. Now, why does God allow it? The, the two points that I would make 
to uh, this, this young man or young woman or anybody who is asking this question, I would start in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Unfortunately, we tend to think of this whole Jesus and Christianity thing as God just trying to get people to heaven in the end. What Titus points out, or excuse me, what the book of Titus, what Paul writing to Titus points out is that what God is doing is he's creating an army. He's creating a team. Right. It's, you know, this is why he didn't just end things with Adam and Eve. He's creating a group of people, a kingdom that's going to do good stuff. And, you know, look, I know there's all debates going on right now about what eternity is going to look like, and I don't know all the answers to that, but I'm pretty sure eternity is not going to look like floating on clouds playing harps. I think there's something that's going to be happening in eternity where what we go through in this world has trained us to be able to accomplish that work. And God is creating people who and training people to do that. And that takes time. That takes time. Which then leads to the second passage that I would bring up. And that second passage is 2 Peter chapter 3. In, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, as I get over there, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holy? and godliness waiting excuse me waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of god because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells i went past verse 10 i went all the way to verse 13 well, what I would try to point out is, look, it takes time for God to build this army, for God to build this kingdom that is zealous for good works to accomplish whatever this work is that he has for us throughout eternity. And that patience here in, in, in 2 Peter, it is certainly true that the moment anybody does something wrong, God could bring the judgment against it at that moment. But if he does, then there's never repentance. There's no building of this army. There's no building of this team. There's no building of this kingdom to accomplish these goals. And so because God is, is working on this plan, it one of the things that corresponds with that is, well, some people aren't going to repent. Yep. And as he is patiently waiting, trying to trying to develop people, to bring as many people to on board, to be a part of that team, to be able to be a part of the kingdom of light, that, that does also mean allowing the folks who refuse to do it to continue on in their behavior for a time. And that is a terrible, awful thing that we experience, but that is now the world that we live in. God will bring judgment on that. Nobody's going to get away with anything. But and, and then the final thing that I would say to that is, I don't know exactly what God has planned for eternity, but it must be really, really, really amazing mm -hmm. if he thinks it's worth what we're going through.
which then gets us to Romans 8, where he talks about the suffering we endure now is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us in eternity. If it's, if, if, if God says building my team is worth this, building my army, building my kingdom is worth this, it is going to be amazing. And so I keep hanging on, keep hanging on. Well, and on. that idea of God building his people is not just, is not just a time factor, but as you were alluding to, it, it's, it's a, it's, he's preparing us. I mean, that's, that's James chapter one, you know, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience have its perfect work is that God is preparing us through difficulties, through the things that we face. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, right now it, it, the, congregation in Beaverton where I, I serve as the evangelist, we're studying the book of John, and we're looking at John 16 and 17, where Jesus is preparing the disciples for the way the world is going to react to them. And he literally prays to God, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, I'm asking you to keep them from the evil one. And, and he's praying for their ability to endure in the middle of difficulty. And difficulty can be purifying. The wickedness that other men yeah. do can be purifying to the one who has his hope centered on Christ because it makes that hope more real. Yes, good point. Thank you for adding that. So I, Well, I appreciate what you said, but it's, it's just that thought. So let's talk about a crisis that hits close to home. The child of faithful parents tells them that he has no interest in ever being baptized because he doesn't believe in God. The reasons that he gives are all cultural. What advice are you going to give to the parents, and how might you speak to that young man? Explain to me what you mean by the the reasons are all cultural. Well, I mean, he, he lists kind of the reasoning of culture. Just we've gone past the need for God. Science explains existence better than God, that I see the morality of the culture, and it's just as good as the morality of the Bible, you know, th those type things. Okay. Okay, so try to talk about this because this does hit close to home. This hits very close to home. I have in just the last couple months had a child that has come to me and said that she's no longer a Christian. And uh, it is a, it is an awful, it is a heartrending, soul crushing experience. So the advice that, that I want to give to parents on this is, is right now where I am probably a little bit more intellectual than it is emotional because emotionally I can say the things I'm about to say, but emotionally they're not actually working for me, if I can say. The first thing that I would say th that I would advise the parents on that is avoid two extremes. Avoid the extremes of beating yourself up and the extremes of just constantly trying to justify yourself and your parenting. It doesn't matter, honestly, what we believe intellectually or scripturally about what causes children to not follow the Lord. I actually do not subscribe to the idea that if parents do the job right, the kids will follow the Lord. I don't subscribe to that. I wish we'd get rid of that. I wish we'd quit teaching that and acting like that. But even, even with, and I've been saying that for years, not just for five months. I've been saying that for years. But the reality is since November, every day since November, I have just gone through in my mind, what, what did I do wrong? What, 
And the fact is, I did do things wrong. And, th- and that's the thing. I did do things wrong. And certainly, if someone wants to go through my own parenting, they'd be able to find them. And they could say, hey, this is the reason. This is what caused it. I, I don't know. I don't know. I know this. Every father I ever meet has done things wrong, and not all of their kids fall away. Some of them have done things wrong. I, you know, and I don't know. Don't beat yourself up. You know, the reality is we're probably not nearly as responsible for our children's faithfulness as we like to think, which means we're not nearly as responsible for their unfaithfulness as we sometimes blame ourselves. But don't, don't, make, but don't do the other thing of constantly trying to justify and act like you didn't mess up. Because we did. We did. Years ago, I wrote a blog post about the fact that, look, my, I'm not going to raise the next Jesus and my kids are going to learn how to sin from me because that's, that's how people have learned how to sin since Adam and Eve, watching their parents. So don't beat yourself up. That's my advice. But don't, don't spend all your time trying to justify yourself. Ask God for forgiveness and turn to him for the places where you did mess up because you did. And, and recognize that our kids get to make their own choices just like we make our own choices. My second piece of advice to parents is be Jesus. Shine the light of the kingdom into the relationship with that child. Yelling at that child, screaming at that child, belittling that child, none of that is going to help. Be Jesus and shine the light of the kingdom into that relationship. And number three, the advice that I'd give to parents when, when this happened and my wife and I were, have been talking through it, we remembered the parable of the prodigal. And what I remember from the parable of the prodigal is that the prodigal went out and got to spend some time with friends and for a time certainly believed that he had made the right choice. Everything that he experienced for a time seemed to support. You know, he went out and he spent that inheritance. And he had, I, I don't know what all he did. The parable doesn't tell us, but I, I'm just, I'm filling in some gaps on this. You know, he had his parties, he had his friends, but then he went through all of it. And even then he still didn't come to his senses. But then a famine occurred. And nobody out there in that far country was willing to help him. And that's when he came to his senses. And so, as hard as it is, I advise that parent to pray for the famine. To pray for the famine to come in that child's life. And to pray that God will remove the help from people in that far country so that they realize that where I have it best is in God's house. And I know that there's plenty of people who have turned away from the Lord and decided not to believe in the Lord and they don't ever come to their senses. And it's it's almost too much for me to bear to think that that's going to happen to any of my kids. But I have to remember that like I make my choices, they make theirs. And so those are, those are the three pieces of advice I would give. Number one, 
Don't, you know, avoid those extremes of beating yourself up or justifying yourself. Number two, be Jesus and shine the light of the kingdom in that relationship and all that that entails. And number three, pray for the famine. That's my advice to the parents. My advice to the, what I would say if somebody's child came to me and said that I'm willing to talk to you about this, and that, that assumes that they are willing to talk to me. Now you've, you've, you've added in here that it's these cultural reasons, but if somebody came to me saying, I don't believe in God, the first thing I would ask is why? So my, my first step on that is ask for the reason. Why don't you believe in God? Do you, do you not believe in God because you've looked at the evidence and you've decided God can't be out there? Have you, do you not believe in God because, you know, something really, really bad happened to you and you don't think, you know, I, I would want to listen. What, what's the reason for not believing in God? What, what has prompted this doubt and disbelief? And so, of course, what I'm going to say to them is going to have to depend on that. Right. But as they respond... You know, my advice there is I, I want to listen. I, I want to ask questions. I want to listen. I want to ask questions. I want to listen. I want to get down to what is what is the reason. And then the, the, the answer I'm about to share with you really comes from something I read. It's uh, from a book that a guy wrote talking about actually how to communicate with people who are mentally ill. He says, I'm not sick. I don't need help. How do you talk to people that don't know they're sick? And so as I'm talking to this person, I think one of the things I'm going to start with, and this is going to sound really odd, but I'm going to do some validating. Not, not because I agree, but the validating, oh, okay, you know what? Hey, if that happened to me, I, I might be in the exact same place you are. I, okay, I, I get it. I get why you're seeing it that way. All right. When, when able to respond, I would talk tentatively. You know what? I could be wrong about this, but, you know, rather than just, you know, pummeling them, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Why on earth would you ever think that? That's ridiculous. You know, look, hey, I could be wrong about this, but here's what I see. And then the third part of that, I'm going to put the onus of being the one who's judgmental and disrespectful on them. I'm going to say, look, I get it. I disagree with you. That may disappoint you, but man, I hope you can still respect me. Because for some reason, they have the idea that we Christians, we, we don't respect people who disagree with us, when the reality is, you know, when we're, when we're living like Jesus Christ, we're very respectful. Hey, you've, you've got the freedom to do this. Right. And, you know, but what I really hope is that you'll respect me, yeah, because that, that you, hey, all right, we disagree on this, but, uh, but here's where I am. I hope, you can, I hope you can respect me for not just falling in line with you on this one. And then again, just remembering... And, and and telling them the truth. I mean, I, I guess I assumed that. So let's make sure as, I, you know, I'm going to respond with what I think are the appropriate arguments to whatever they bring up. But these are the ways in which I'm going to try to do that. I hope that makes sense because I know I didn't give like specific answers, answer this objection with this response, right. but rather more just kind of an attitude and approach no matter what the objection is. And I, I think that that might actually be more helpful than specific answers. Every case is different. And when I presented these questions to Edwin, I had no idea what, you know, he and his family had gone through in recent months. And you have our sympathies for that. I'll give you the option to maybe edit some of that down if you'd like. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you get struggles of faith with your children or with your spouse, it's always a crisis. It's always going to be something that tests your faith. 
and it's always going to be something that you're going to want to respond to urgently. But I was thinking about an interview that I did with Keith Stonehart when you were talking, that there's a difference between urgent and dramatic. And you have to be the calming influence in those moments or else you might just be the thing that pushes them even further. And, and doing exactly what Edwin just said, realize we can't expect perfection from our children. We can't expect perfection from ourselves as our parents, but we do the best job that we can to model Jesus for them. And I hope I encapsulated your thoughts well in saying that, that you do pray for the famine and you do pray for eye-opening events even if the opening of the eyes is something that you would immediately reverse when they came home, you want them to see that apart from God is not safe. And that, you know, being able to listen to them and in some cases validate, not, not, agree with, but say, okay, I, I understand how you came to that point, but have you thought about this? Have you considered the counterpoint? And making sure that that person walks away knowing that that the the division that might exist between you is not animosity, and it's not anger, and it's not hatred, and it's not I'm wrathful with you, but it's I'm praying that you come home. That's about the only shot any of us have as parents to try to win our children. Whether we're talking about before, they, before they've left home and gone on their own or after they've left home and gone on their own. And God be with you and your family, brother, because I know that that, that is not easy. And I appreciate you. I appreciate the things that you said to us today on that topic. If there's, if there's anything that, that you can see is how... Preachers are not immune to this. Elders are not immune from this. That there is no guarantee that our children are going to walk in the way that we want them to walk. Actually, there is a guarantee. There's a guarantee that they are not going to walk exactly how we would like them to walk because we don't walk exactly how we would like to walk. And keeping that in mind is crucial when you're dealing with somebody who is doubting or leaving the Lord or I don't believe, or they've gone into a denomination of some kind and they've they've lost their way in that. Making sure that you keep the lines of dialogue open so that they don't feel hatred. And I think too often that's what we lead with is, is you know, I'm angry at your decision rather than I really pray that you that you'll come to the truth on this. So, brother, what kinds of things Let's take a moment, decompress there. I know that you, you, you might <laughs> no that. problem. But what kinds of thoughts would you give to men charged with shepherding a congregation through a crisis when that crisis hits close to home? I mean, you know, sometimes a crisis might be one like I knew a congregation in Houston that lost a very much beloved and needed elder to a drunk driver. A guy, hmm. you know, caught airborne over some train tracks and flew about two blocks and slammed into his car. You know, yeah, that wow. was a couple of years ago. Killed him instantly. That mm-hmm. elders are shepherding a congregation through some sort of crisis, some sort of maybe division that's come up among the people. 
What kind of advice are you going to give to men about managing that situation? So kicking off with, I, I feel really inadequate to answer this question, but as I, as I think about it, you know, today, you asking me that, I think there are three things that I want to share with anyone. Number one, we need to be completely aware and honest about what the crisis actually is. And, and be, be honest, is it really a crisis? I guess I'm thinking about what you just shared a minute ago from Keith, Brother Stoneheart, the difference between what's dramatic and what's urgent, what's important and what's urgent, what's important and what's dramatic. There are things, (laughs) you know, that, that really takes me back. And this is, this is just a very silly little thing that we would never think is a crisis, but I remember it being used as an illustration and I think this is in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, talking about the difference between what's urgent and what's important. The phone starts ringing, and that's urgent. I I know none of us would think that the phone is a crisis, although what we are all afraid of is it might represent a crisis. That phone has been ringing, and what it probably means is something really, really bad has happened, and they have to have me at this moment And so even though right now I am in the middle of a prayer with my family, I got to say amen real quick and go answer the phone. And it's a telemarketer. I mean, think about the number of times when the phone ringing really was. I mean, I'm not saying it's never happened, but, but how many times was it really something life and death crisis that, man, it sure is good that I answered right then because somebody might have died or the world would have come to an end if I had waited 30 minutes to get the voicemail on that one. Mm-hmm. That, look, there, that does happen on occasion, but very rarely. That's a silly little illustration that just points out I need to be very honest about is it really a crisis If it is, what is the crisis? Going back to how we set this up, that a crisis is this this thing where where things, the pain point has gotten so so deep that I realize I've got one of two directions, or I've got different directions to go, and one of them is going to lead to death, and the other one's going to lead to life. And so being very honest, because sometimes, I mean, even there, listen, man, what an awful thing to wake up on a Sunday morning and find out that one of your shepherds was killed in an accident last night. I, I, I imagine the, you know, and when James was executed, what a crisis. Mm-hmm. Now Peter is, is uh, arrested. What a crisis. But what, what, but what is the crisis? You know, is, is, the, is the crisis that this elder was holding everything together? And so now that he's dead, our church is going to fall apart? Wow, that, I mean, that's a crisis. Is the crisis just we're all really hurt and sad? I mean, that's, you know what, that's, that's not necessarily a crisis. Right. We, we live in a world, sad things happen. And it, it breaks our hearts and we've got to grieve and we mourn, but we, we continue hanging on to Jesus. So what, what is the real crisis? And just be really honest about it. Number two, pray more than you plan. And plan a lot. <laughs> I like that one. Okay. Pray more than you plan and plan. When I say this, I'm not saying that we don't come up with plans for how to deal with crisis, but we need to pray a whole lot more. 
I think of two biblical examples of that. Jacob was coming back into the promised land, and he knew that Esau was coming. And he had a plan. He had a plan to get Esau's favor. You know, he he divided up his family to try to protect some of them. I mean, some of that still demonstrates his his weakness and his uh, struggle that he was going through. And then he sent gifts. But he also prayed. He prayed to God. So he had his plan and he had his prayer. David, when the Absalom rebellion was going on, and Ahithophel decided to stay with Absalom, David prays that God will thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. And then David plans by sending Hushai to go thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. So we see praying and planning going together. So I, I, I just so that's why I worded it. I tried to word, word it carefully. Pray more than you plan and plan a lot. God will work through our plans. God will work through the choices that we've made. But, but pray more than we plan. Most of the time when we get in the crisis, prayer is the thing we do to kick off the meeting and close the meeting as if kind of to rubber stamp that this has all been very spiritual and we're still serving the Lord. Rather than I'm just we're gonna spend a ton of time praying to God, committing our decisions to Him, seeking His glory through prayer. When when uh, James was executed and Peter was taken prisoner, they you know they didn't get together for a business meeting. They got over to Mary's house for a time of prayer. And yeah, you know now granted I understand there wasn't much planning they could do to get Peter released, but I hope you get the point. Pray more than you plan. Plan a lot. Number three, it really goes back to what we said in our bigger conversation. Stay Christ-centered in crisis. Let Jesus manage this crisis. And what I think that looks like is I'm going to stay in the Word of God and I'm going to do what's right rather than what I think is going to work. And this, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. This is something that I've tried to learn in parenting, and I haven't always done well. Who knows? Maybe this is one of the problems. But too often in parenting and in church work, I've decided here's the goal I want, and I start trying to work through in my wisdom what do I think is going to produce that goal, rather than just saying, what is the thing Jesus asks me to do? You know, I mean, the reality is, you know, I mean, we've got a crisis of a of a married couple that's not following the Lord and they're going to divorce or they're committing adultery or all those things. You know, the reality is I do what God says and they might not come back. So what I try to do is figure out how to make it work. I think this, I think this actually plays out when a lot of people discuss congregational discipline. I hear a lot of people talk about congregational discipline from the statement, oh, it doesn't work because we're, because of all this, the way we're doing it. And well, I mean, maybe we're doing it wrong. And if we're doing it wrong, let's just talk about that. But it's not wrong because it didn't work. It's wrong because we didn't do what Jesus said. Right. Because the reality is, just because we do what Jesus says doesn't mean they're going to come back. We're supposed to do it the right way because it's the right way, not because it'll produce the results we want. And so those are my three bits of, of, of information. Be completely on or of advice here. And uh, I look forward to hearing other people add to that because, like I said, I feel completely inadequate to answer this one. But number one, be completely honest about what the crisis is and if it's a crisis. Number two, pray more than you plan and plan a lot. 
And number three, stay Christ-centered. Let him manage the crisis. Well, and I think that actually answers the next question pretty well. How can we manage the next crisis better than the last few that we've endured? I mean, if you look at, we don't have a great track record recently, probably most most churches would subscribe to this, of enduring the last crisis as well, or crises well. But when you look at it, <laughs> he's holding up a sign that says, see question number four. I love it. You see, I told you we were going to yeah, get along. I that I don't know. I, I don't want to give away any of your podcasting secrets. I don't know if they know that you at least gave me a heads up on oh, what no, these I rapid tell them fire all, questions all the were going to be. That, and I, I appreciate that because I, I don't think I could have answered these at all if you hadn't given me that heads up. And and so I wrote out my notes for number four and I read number five and I thought, yeah, see number four. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and that's exactly it is acknowledging that we can do better. We can be honest with ourselves about what the source of the trouble is. We can, we can, we can deal with the whole thing by planning, but more prayer than planning and, and lots more prayer than planning, but plan a lot, making sure that the whole time we're keeping Jesus at the center. And, and you use the illustration of Peter walking on the water. And it was sort of like the other example of the, of the apostles being in the boat when it's when in the storm that we can fault Peter for losing his faith in Jesus, but at least he invited Jesus into the situation that he was in. And I think far too often that's what we don't do, is we don't invite Jesus to deal with these things. Because yeah. that means surrendering to his way. And that means trying something difficult. That means as, as a parent, when my child is falling away, that the dynamic between he and I or she and I is going to change. But you don't cast them away. I think that's a lot of times what we do is we say, well, I just don't want anything to do with them anymore. It's not what the Bible says. But you try to behave like the father in the prodigal son. You let them go to the far country. You hope that they return, and you look for them coming back, and you greet them with joy and with forgiveness and with love when you see them coming back home. And you pray for the grace of God to help you do that and the strength of God to help you do that. Mm-hmm. Well, brother, this marks the end of our conversation. I have enjoyed it. Okay. I have I've 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 enjoyed the the two hours that we spent together and you have shared Well, you let me do most of the talking, so I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, I mean, they get to hear they get to hear me on guests that that I have to pry a little bit more. I just open the door for you and then sort of reinforce what you say, because you were prepared to talk about these things. I mean, some, some guests, you got to warm them up a little bit to, to, to get them to answer <laughs> more than just yes and no. Did you notice all my questions are open-ended? <laughs> there are no closed-ended yeah, questions. Well, yeah, <laughs> I learned that, I learned that lesson. Good, good interview process. I have enjoyed our time together, and I appreciate your, your honesty you. and your, the, the direction that you gave people to really look at Jesus and keep their eyes focused there. Because the fact of the matter is, is there's always going to be a crisis. There's always a fire to put out. But when you let the fire consume you, then you burn. But when you turn to the one that can manage that situation, then you survive, then you live. And, and as true in scripture, so in life. And yes, you know, we appreciate you being here. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say to the audience before we close it out? No, no, but I do want to say to you, thank you very much for letting me be a part of Absolutely. this. I consider it a great honor, and I, I very much thank you so much. It's sure good to to meet you here. I look forward to the day that we can actually 
meet face to face and give each other a hug and a handshake. I look forward to that. And I'll have some more ideas for things that I want to plug you into. I've got some ideas based on this conversation, but I'll send those to you offline. But thank you so much for being here. And uh, and yeah, be sure to check out Text Talk so that you can better appreciate the Word of God. Well, from me and all my guests here at Man Up, we want to say as we always do, have a good day, God bless, and man up. Dismissed!